Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Salve. Ciao. Buongiorno. Greetings and welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. We are your hosts. I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University. And I'm Giancarlo Lombardi from the College of Staten Island and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Nicoletta Marini-Maio from Dickinson College. Whether you're a colleague and expert in the field of Italian studies, or just curious about Italian history, culture, politics, and language, we are your podcast destination. The aim of the Italian Studies channel is to provide a broad spectrum of listeners access to exciting new research within the field of Italian studies. Italian studies is a fascinating interdisciplinary field that spans literary studies, cultural studies, cinema and television studies, theater and performance, the history of science, the history of art and music, among many, many other fields. That's right, Nico. Our conversations here are with scholars who have produced recent research across many and varied fields and topics. Ellen, Nicoletta, and I are scholars of modern and contemporary Italian studies, but our mission is to bring you the best of new scholarship in the field, from medieval literature to the most recent cinema and television. And the focus, approaches, and methods of study will differ And what we hope emerges from our conversations is an idea of the richness the field has to offer to many and different listeners. So welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Grazie dell'ascolto. And thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University, and this is New Books in Italian Studies on the New Books Network. My guest today is Elena Past, who is Associate Professor of Italian at Wayne State University, where she has taught since 2006. Hi, great to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you're here, Elena. Let me let me just tell the listeners about you. Um, Professor Past's wide-ranging interests include Italian literature and cinema, literary theory, crime fiction, eco-criticism, and eco-media studies, food culture and the slow food movement, and post-humanism and animal studies. She helps coordinate the annual Italian film film festival, as well as other cinematic and cultural events in the Detroit metropolitan area, seeking to draw into proximity the university and the community in which it is located. And she is also, I understand, chair of the president's standing committee on environmental initiatives. And that's the president of Wayne State, not any other president. Um, We won't comment on that. Um, uh, Elena Past is the author of Methods of Murder, Beccarian Introspection and Lombrosian Vivisection in Italian Crime Fiction, co-editor of the volume of essays, Thinking Italian Animals, Human and Post-Human in Modern Italian Literature and Film, and co-editor also of the collection of essays, Italy and the Environmental Humanities, Landscapes, Natures, Ecologies. The subject of our discussion today is her recently published monograph, Italian Ecocinema, Beyond the Human, just released by Indiana University Press. Elena, welcome to New Books in Italian Studies and to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thanks for that lovely introduction. 
So for our listeners, I'm just going to do a thumbnail sketch of what you are um, concerned with in your book, Italian Eco Cinema. Uh, we're going to be making our way through the book uh, in our discussion, but I just want to give them an idea um, and say that the book focuses on five case studies that are provided by films shot on location in Italy. Throughout, Elena Past focuses on the relationships between film crew, location, and actor, whether that actor is a human or a non-human animal. She begins with Michelangelo Antonioni's 1964 film Deserto Rosso, or Red Desert, before looking at a nucleus of films released in Italy and internationally since 2008, and which include Matteo Garrone's Gomorra, Il Vento Fa Il Suo Giro, or The Wind Blows Round, by Giorgio Diritti, Michelangelo Frammartino's film Le Quattro Volte, and Giovanna Taviani's Fughe e Aprodi, Return to the Aeolian Islands. So this is the corpus that you're exploring in Italian eco-cinema. And my first question, Elena, is can you tell us how you became interested in Italian eco-cinema? Well, thanks, Ellen. Um, that's a difficult question. I don't think I'm very good at telling origin stories. Um, I really think the story of Italian eco-cinema is a story of convergence, the sort of mesh of interests that eventually coalesced into the book idea. Um, but as I was thinking about it, um, I think there is an interesting backstory. Um, if, we, if you'll be patient for just a moment, I would rewind back to Beeville, Texas, where I grew up, a town in South Texas, south of San Antonio. Um, I remember really distinctly when a big, a certain big box store arrived in town and witnessing over the course of my childhood, the gradual disappearance of many of the family owned businesses that were on Main Street. Um, basically a sort of slow homogenization of things that were on offer. Um, some of the erosion of the public life of this small town. Um, I started just after um, high school, a boycott of said big box store, which actually continues today. I'm somewhat proud of that. Um, fast forward a few years into the future, and I encountered Franco Cassano's Il Pensiero Meridiano, which was translated into English by Norma Bouchard and Valerio Ferme um, as Southern Thought and other essays on the Mediterranean. Um, I think Cassano's work really struck me because it resonated with this sort of intuition that I feel like I had somewhere back um, in Texas. Um, he posits an alternative to the myth of infinite growth, of what he calls turbo capitalism, the value systems and hierarchies that accompany a lot of our stories about modernity. Very broadly, the, these ideas that consumption and speed, the urban, the north, the plastic, the disposable, um, somehow are the things that end up at the top of these hierarchies. For Cassano, the material shape of the Mediterranean, the landscapes, um, including the seascapes and the sort of encounter of land and sea, offer this really interesting alternative historical trajectory um, he gives us an alternative ethical framework with which we push back against the values of speed, consumption, the urban, etc. Um, and I think what he does really brilliantly is to not say that these things um, are nostalgic or that they're in their, our past, but they're right alongside us. And that all it takes is for us to flip the script of, of our expectations, of our ethics, to read the world from a new perspective. 
I found Castano's work to be really illuminating, um, and it led me to write an article about Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou and Emanuele Crialese's Respiro, where I looked at underwater cinematography. Um, I was thinking about a cinema that sort of takes its feet, um, so to speak, off of solid ground and examines the world from the perspective of the sea. Um, that was the beginning of an interest in the sort of um, material and production-based um, studies of films, um, studies. Um, and then that led to an invitation to present at the SCMS conference, um, where I met a network of scholars who are interested in environmental media crit criticism. And those collaborations and conversations, as well as my work with the Italian Film Festival in Detroit, led me to generate the idea that became um, Italian eco-cinema. Um, so I think that's sort of where it was born. And I'm always so aware of the fact that these projects are um, indeed sort of a, a big mesh of ideas and influences. Um, I think you see lots of citations in my work because I'm intimately aware of the, the dialogue that's required um, to take on an interdisciplinary project like this one. Mm. It's so interesting. I, I'm struck by when I when I was preparing for this interview, I uh, I took a, a deeper dive than I than I might ordinarily do into your biography and saw the UT Austin uh, bachelor's degree. But I was but now I'm really struck by how the Souths that you've been interested in are comparable. That is to say that where where um, shore meets sea. And where the different animals on our planet sort of converge, as uh, as you were pointing out, um, there's some tremendous resonances between Southern Texas and you know the Italian Peninsula, which sticks out right into the the the, the middle there, right, the Mediterranean. Um, so I, 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 that's really you might not have wanted to give us an origin story, but it is a very interesting origin story, nevertheless, right? Um, so I'd like to ask you um, to talk a little bit about uh, locations, because location seems, well, it doesn't seem, it is a signal uh, element in your approach. And I'd first like to ask you about locations, and then I'd like to, from there, talk about the ecological footprint that you discuss that cinema leaves in locations. So first I'd say... Um, you know, in Italian eco-cinema, you place yourself in each of the locations that you explore. Um, could you say something about the way that this informs your practice as a scholar? In what ways does this contribute to your overall method and approach to the study of Italian cinema? Well, thanks. That's a wonderful question. Um, and I think that, um, so the, the chapters each begin with indeed a story about me and my research um, on location, a conversation that I had with a member of a production crew. Um, and I try to describe where I was, what I was hearing, um, what my surroundings were. Um, and there are a couple of reasons that I really wanted to do that. Um, one of the bigger projects of environmentalism um, is to work against the potentially alienating quality of environmental problems. Um, there are a lot of communication scholars who've thought about the moment um, that the Earth was photographed from outer space, 1972. Um, that image that we can probably all call to mind of our blue marble. Um, blue the, marble, big blue marble. 
they consider that to be a watershed moment in some ways because we see the earth from a distance and thus understand its fragility and maybe our relationship to it. Um, but there's been increasingly concern that it also puts us a little too far away um, and that it makes things seem um, also as if they're situated um, from a, a perspective that we can take in in its entirety. Um, it reduces some of the complexity of the problems and it um, and it risks reproducing this view that's been called um, the view from above and from nowhere. I think Stacey Alemo calls this the ostensibly perspectiveless perspective. Um, so it gives a sense that we can divide ourselves entirely from the earth. Um, and so I think locating myself in each of these chapters is a gesture towards recognizing that we are necessarily crossed by and very much a part of every place that we move through and every work that we touch as scholars. Um, so it's an ethical positioning that's sort of admitting, um, and this is the part where it becomes really a meta-scholarly project, um, an admission that even if I write from a perspective that's rig rigorously third person and I erase the I entirely, of course I'm, I'm part of that scholarship. Um, and so it's trying to take responsibility um, for the fact that I know that my, my perspectives, my own traces are a part of my scholarly work. Um, so I'm putting them front and center to foreground again this environmental question and also sort of ethical scholarly positioning. Right. So in fact, the um, what you've just described as the ethical trace uh, of yourself and your scholarship um, leads me to the second part or the related part of the question, which concerns the ecological footprint that uh, cinema leaves. And specifically, um, you might want to talk also about Italian cinema. As you were speaking just now, I was um, I was impressed or struck by the fact that you are also a, st a scholar of Italian studies working in a, in a distance situation. You are working remotely um, for much of the time. Obviously, you go on location, but I do wonder about that distance of refraction too. If you want to address that, that's great. But mostly I'm interested in chasing down the notion of the ecological footprint. And um, what, are we, what are we missing when we fail to account for cinema's ecological footprint? So um, more great questions. Thank you. Um, so when I say that cinema leaves an ecological footprint, um, I'm basically trying to restore our notion of the materiality of the, um, the cinematic project. So from production to um, the um, actual sort of creation of a film to distribution networks, um, cinema impacts in all kinds of ways the locations that it passes through. Um, of course, the, the notion of a carbon footprint now is familiar. The amount of greenhouse gases that um, support our human activities, we can offset them supposedly um, and, and tally them up and see how um, many improvements we can make in our carbon footprint. The ecological footprint is a slightly broader term um, that's encouraging viewers and scholars and students to think about the way that um, every cultural production um, leaves traces, both cultural and material. Um, and so this project is mostly looking at films that were made on location. This is true, of course, even if you're working in Chinachita or Hollywood. Um, I think it's really interesting that Italian cinema has a very strong um, tradition of filming on location for a whole variety of historical reasons. Um, so the films that I chose were um, filmed 
all over the Italian peninsula. And um, the idea of the ecological footprint is that um, if you were to return to those locations as a scholar of culture, as a scientist, as a geologist, you could actually find um, traces of passage, um, whether it is in waste that's left behind, whether you look at the energy expenditures that supported the making of the film, or whether you look at the way the, the people who were involved, the extras, the people on location were impacted by conversations with the film crews, the animals who took part in many of these stories, um, nothing is left untouched um, after the passage of a film. Um, and that's not it's not always a positive story. It's not always a negative story, but it's always a deeply collaborative story. And I was interested in unpacking some of those, um, the traces that are left behind. You know, I should say for our listeners, too, if I might, that you and I are having this conversation at the end of a week that began with the um, eco-activist Greta Thunberg addressing the UN, uh, the United Nations um, in their climate uh, conference. Uh, so a lot of this is um, it's deeply affecting to me. And I was deeply affected by reading uh, in reading your your very elegant book, Elena, about the um, the ways that it brings to mind, it makes present for those who might think that seeing a film, even a location film, even if it immerses you as a viewer uh, from a distance, you are nevertheless participating in a very broad circuit, a very long circuit that has um, specific material effects, I think. So uh, I did just want to um, do a shout out for uh, Greta Thunberg, um, since she's been ever present in my mind uh, this week. Um, that, and you remind me that the other part of your question was about the distance of our perspective on Italian studies. Um, right. Of course, there was so much publicity around Greta's refusal to fly and her, um, her arrival via solar powered uh, yacht. Um, the, the epilogue of my book thinks for a moment, but Juliana Bruno really does beautifully talk about oh, yeah. um, the, um, the ironies, um, of the distance that scholarship takes us. Um, you know, I, I, lots of climate activists and climate scholars have these deeply ambival ambivalent perspectives on their, um, their research travel, um, a lot of guilt about the fact that mm -hmm. um, in order to talk about environmental topics or research a country that's far away from you, um, you know, you are, of course, contributing to the problem. Um, I don't want to erase any of those ironies. Um, and I do spend a lot of time thinking about them. And the fact that we're having this conversation at uh, the end of the, the week of the UN Climate Summit and the big Friday for Future climate strike last week is... Um, I think really appropriate and, and kind of important to me. Yeah, it's important to me too. And I also think that um, with regard to the Italian studies aspect of this, I think many of us try to think about ways to organically, if I can use that word, draw together an object of study that is um, emanating or emitting from another location, planetary location, and bring our students into those cultures and show them both the similarities and the differences. And I, I mean, that would be another conversation for another day, but the, the ethical ramifications of that particular enterprise about showing the, the sameness, showing the fact that it's a big blue marble, for example, I mean, distance 
and and remote location, I suppose you could say that it raises or paves over significant differences, but at the same time, certainly it draws us into our commonalities with our other planetary animals, whether they're human or non-human, I think. So um, it's, uh, as I say, that would be a conversation for another day. But back to Italian eco-cinema. I'd like to ask you about uh, a concept that you explore in your introduction and throughout the book, really. You, You meditate on the concept of slowness, and you place it in distinction to what you call and what others, I think, before you also have called the, quote unquote, great acceleration. Could you describe what you see as the cinema of slowness and the challenges of the great acceleration and which uh, some scholars of eco-criticism have also called the, the Anthropocene? Um, it might be helpful if, uh, for our listeners if you, were, if you unpack those particular terms and, and told us how they work in your study. Certainly. So um, the cinema of slowness uh, is, or slow cinema, um, is something that's been theorized by a variety of scholars in edited collections. Um, And they're looking at um, cinema as a medium that makes choices about time um, via the pace of editing, um, via the length of shots. So there are all kinds of technical devices that can allow you to proceed more slowly through a cinematic experience and that can thus heighten your attention to details or sounds or um, subjects, non-human subjects. Um, so slow cinema has been theorized um, as a particular sort of aesthetic practice. Um, Antonioni is quite frequently mentioned as one of the early um, proponents of a cinema of slowness or exemplars. Um, Michelangelo Framartino is also cited in some of these collections, and I know that we'll talk about his beautiful Le Quattro Volte later. Um, I sort of use the idea of slowness as um, a practice of observation um, that I'm encouraging. It's essentially a mindfulness um, which loops back into the scholarly practice, um, positing that we have to slow down as scholars and pay attention to cinematic details um, in order to notice the non-human participants and actors in in film um, productions. So um, this sort of mindfulness can lead us to um, dilate our attention to a scene and thus notice the soundscapes in the background that are animating it or um, pay closer attention to the role of an apparently minor subject, um, a goat, a a butterfly, um, a landscape. So in some ways, um, in the case of Italian eco-cinema, I'm really thinking of it as um, a scholarly practice and a resistance to reading primarily for plot. Um, In terms of the great acceleration, then I think slowness as as a practice is interesting because um, so the great acceleration is one of the proposed starting points for the era that scientists are debating um, whether we should call the Anthropocene. So the Anthropocene, of course, from Anthropos um, is uh, an epic that would succeed the or be, be after the Holocene and would um, be the era when we can actually read the traces of um, human activities in the geology of the earth. So geologists would name a new geological epic if they were able to see things like um, plastics or nuclear fallout, um, 
and they would think that these things have a particularly predominant place in the geological record. So it's a reading practice of the earth. And once you see those traces predominating, um, they will decide whether or not there's enough evidence to suggest that we are indeed living in a new geological epoch. Um, they voted in May 2019. Geologists voted to, um, in a working group, the Anthropocene Working Group thought that there's enough evidence to um, call our epoch the Anthropocene and to say that the moment when the Anthropocene really began was around the mid-20th century. And that's the moment that gets called the Great Acceleration, because if you've seen at any point um, these planetary um, charts, there's a whole series of charts that show um, accelerating processes, um, accelerating and legible traces left by human activities on the environment, on the oceans, on the lands, on the um, in the atmosphere, um, and those all start ticking up really impressively. They've been called hockey sticks in the mid-20th century. Um, and so the rapidity of change after about 1950 is what's called the Great Acceleration. Um, and so all of my films, as you note, although they range over a good period of time, belong to that second half of the 20th century. Um, and I'm sort of looking at... Um, the period of time when Italy was also changing dramatically um, post-World War II as a signal moment for these planetary changes. Yeah, that's so that's so compelling, Elena. I think that um, if I could say, you know, four of the five chapters in Italian eco-cinema focus on Italian films made within the last 20 years, well, actually within the last 15 years. Uh, but in chapter one, you do start with Antonioni, uh, and his master text, if I can call it that, Deserto Rosso or Red Desert. So not all of our listeners are going to have this film fresh in their minds. So um, I wanted to ask uh, that you just briefly reprise uh, the film before telling us why. And you did just a little bit right now tell us why Antonioni and Red Desert is a, is a good place to begin when talking about film industry and environmental awareness. But um, let's so that we can all have it um, flashing um, in front of our eyes when we have them closed. Why don't we just uh, uh, give a super brief summary of uh, of Red Desert? Sure. So this is a 1964 film by um, Antonioni um, that was made on location in Ravenna, um, which at the time was being transformed into one of Italy's major industrial ports. It's on the Adriatic Sea. <laughs> um, and it's um, often considered to be a modernist masterpiece, um, by which we mean that um, it's a very aesthetically beautiful film, very meditative, um, and the plot is not particularly complex. Um, those of us who have taught it know that um, I think it's about 120 minutes, and um, it can be a challenge for a student attention spans. Um, but it tells the story of a woman named Juliana who um, has, we learn in her backstory, recently been involved in an accident, um, appears to be um, depressed. She's suffering from some kind of um, uncertainty about her position in the world. She spends a lot of the film wandering around um, Ravenna um, in, over the course of the film and observing these factories and ports and landscapes. Um, her young son in the middle has a crisis where he believes he's lost the use of his legs and she accompanies him through that. And in the end of the film, um, sort of concludes that they can learn to adapt to this landscape. 
Um, that's probably a, a fairly ecological description of the film. Um, Antonioni says the film is about adaptation to modernity, and he always insists that um, he finds the landscapes of this industrial modernity to be very beautiful, so he's not intent intending to condemn them. Um, so I think it's a really interesting film for this project because um, I'm thinking of all of these films as archives of the landscapes that they capture. So we really get to see 1960s Italy after the boom. Um, we see, you know, factory chimneys and smoke emerging from them and big ships and busy ports. Um, we see people competing for workers. We see people, um, Italy globalizing as they're competing for workers who are going off to Argentina for jobs. Um, so you see the sort of intensity of this process of modernization. And then you have the really interesting subject who's gazing, she's witnessing, um, and very um, deliberately placed as witness to that change. Um, and you get a sense of all of these different ways in which um, it impacts her vision, her body. Um, one of the theories in the book, which is just a passing theory, but I think is really interesting, is that it's um, her symptoms, if you were to line them up and try to read Juliana medically, appear at some points to correspond to a mysterious illness called multiple chemical sensitivity, um, which is very hard to diagnose, but can result in this interruption of your vision, um, strange hear experiences of hearing, um, and which is essentially um, one of the signs that your body has been um, made particularly sensitive to all of the, the chemical landscapes that surround us. Something Stacey Alamo talks about in her beautiful book about um, transcorporeality or the way indeed the, the um, toxins and um, all of the, the components of modernity literally pass through our bodies and our bloodstreams and such. You know, that's so interesting. And I also wanted to observe, we're going to get there before the end of our conversation, but um, starting with a photo, I mean, uh, it, it seems, um, I don't want to say overdetermined, certainly not by you, but maybe by Antonioni, that his witness is a woman and um, the representation of her, of her gender transcorporeality as she is experiencing and her senses are becoming affected by the, by the petrochemical um, trace. Right. Um, and we're going to, you're going to end uh, Italian eco cinema also with um with another, with a woman who's moving now behind the camera, Giovanna Taviani. So I just wanted to bookmark that and say that we're going to be coming back to that. But I am struck by that as you are talking about um, your work on uh, Red Desert. But I'd like to, I'd like to shift now, if I could, and say that you know after the dangers of Antonioni's industrial petrochemical Adriatic wasteland. Uh, you really get down and dirty. And I mean this literally, you get down in the dirt of the region of Campania. So giving on to the uh, Tyrrhenian um, and the Mediterranean there thereafter uh, into the region of Campania and the filthy, dirty, really dirty operations of Matteo Garrone's film Gomorra, which was based on Roberto Saviano's novel, and which subsequently became the highly successful series that is uh, available for viewing in the U.S. on Netflix. Um, a brief review of Garrone's film text, which differs. Some of the, some of our listeners might know uh, the the serial drama, but Garrone's film is is um, significantly uh, distinct from that. 
Um, and that is, of course, your text, right? The film text. And I think that'll be of, of use before we talk about the, the dirty and messy entanglements of corruption, both of the environment as well as of human relations. Okay, so yes. Um, so Mateo Garrones Gomorra is, um, I would say, less character driven than the Netflix series. For anyone who's seen that, it's divided into five episodes and is this loose adaptation of the work of investigative journalism by Roberto Saviano. So it follows five different stories of, um, of uh, Camorra in the area around Naples. Um, I particularly am interested in the problems of eco-mafia, um, so something that one of Italy's biggest environmental NGOs has designated as um, organized crime when its activities are particularly damaging to the environment. Um, and in Campania, the Ecomafia has been really involved in waste disposal. Um, and some of the, th the results of their dirty practices are um, basically dumping toxic waste in, in Italy's bread basket. So you end up with the risk of toxicity in some of the most prized agricultural products in all of Italy. Um, so I follow um, the episode of Gomorra that is directly related to Ecomafia. Um, it's the story of a waste manager who works with a young protege to try to figure out where they can dump more um, toxic waste. Um, but in order to show that via the, the idea of dirt, um, you can really get at both um, the best and, and the worst of um, the culture of the region of Campania, and you also get at these binaries that tend to guide our thinking about um, our environments. I mean, the whole notion of, of dirtiness, um, the way that dirt is figured, um, often has classist and sometimes gendered and sometimes racist overtones. Um, Garrone's film very specifically plays with um, dirty versus clean, and it's something that is articulated in the film. Um, and what I'm trying to show in this chapter is that um, there's a, an important collapse of um, what can be read on the one hand as dirty business practices, but on the other hand can be seen as um, getting your hands dirty or, or rolling up your sleeves and not being afraid to take part in, um, in something that can also be a solution to a crisis that's essentially created by the divorce of um, are in in this case, in the case of Ecomafias, the divorce of um, our culture from production of foodstuffs, divorce, the sort of separation of the city from the countryside. Um, so it's trying to break down those binaries and see the places where everything intermingles. And in the case, it's a complicated story. I'm not sure I'm explaining it very clearly. But in the case of Gomorra, I think it's so interesting that the film production crew was, in fact, moving very ably through all of these spaces. Um, and they were finding um, that they were able to um, essentially make partnerships with people who um, are often off the radar in um, Italian, uh, I mean, in, in legal terms and all kinds of in this big housing complex that's featured in um, Gomorra. Um, Le Vele, they've been forgotten largely by um, civic life. Um, and the film production crew just went right in there to film on location and discovered this interesting kind of strange hospitality 
um, amongst residents who would definitely not collaborate with the police, but were not afraid to collaborate with a film crew. Um, and so I thought that the film um, did a, a brilliant job of working against um, traditional sort of um, expectations for dirty and clean in, in interesting theoretical terms. Right. And also, uh, but you know, that um, the example that you used, that is to say the, the, the dirty business practice, as opposed to, for example, a willingness to roll up one's sleeves is how, is how you put it, is of course what the film crew itself was doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's that material, it, the trace that they're leaving, but the trace they're also documenting. Right. And so, the trace yeah. that they left includes all of these interesting um, friendships and partnerships. Um, and then, as in um, the story of Antonioni, um, they're very hard to judge on any kind of um, ethical scale. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. One of the, you know, the later, as they were filming the series, the same location manager was helping out and they got accused of paying pizza or protection money in order to film in the house of a mob boss. Um, they were, I think, acquitted, but there were all kinds of um, concerns about how you make a production of, on location in Camorra territory. Um, they're fascinating stories, and they sort of suggest that um, exactly a film production like this one has to dance around um, all kinds of borderlands and, and sort of be willing to get dirty in ways that are good and that are questionable. Right. It's also, I'm, if I just bear in mind, for example, the production history of the television series, Gomorrah, it's interesting how this serves as sort of the preface to that. That is to say, the location shooting um, paves the way for other kinds of location shooting. I don't know enough about the television series, but I, I would simply invite uh, listeners to, if perhaps they're familiar with that, they might be interested in the um, in that particular uh, history of um, production, right. Of the, of the television series paved, as I said, uh, it's way paved by the, uh, by Garrone's previous um, exploration of this text, Gomorra, um, transmedial text. It makes its way into on the stage television. I mean, there are lots of different, you know, satirical YouTube videos, for example, all sorts of different um, ways that, 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 that text signifies. Um, so, Point I would just say um, that you're making about uh, another material trace that's often left behind by locations is that one one production serves as location scouting for another and absolutely and so yeah. you know that it's not only one production but that it overlays many many more productions many more traces by by virtue of serving as a, a kind of um, well, and that's sort of the interesting thing. I mean, you know, for anyone who has uh, has gone camping and wants to leave no trace, yeah. it's okay. the same kind. It's the same kind of thing, the same kind of ethos that you would bring to location shooting, which is to say, you know, pack out what you pack in, but also leave the relationships. If you can't leave them better, then certainly don't leave them any worse than uh, than they were when you got there. Right? Don't don't foul it for some person trying to make you know trying to lose use that location in the future. Exactly. And the next film that we're going to talk about, I believe, um, is one where they were very aware of the fact that cinema can um, sometimes simply be exploitative, right? It can it can use and discard locations and human relations in the places where it's made. Um, well, in, indeed. We're aware of that. 
Right. You know, so, so let us, let us um, follow you and your eco-critical eye as you turn in, um, in chapter three of Italian eco cinema to Giorgio Diritti's 2005, if I write 2005, right? Il vento fa il suo giro. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, this film, Il vento fa il suo giro, was released in the U.S. as uh, with the title um, The Wind Blows Round and in the following year in 2006. And although in a radically different location, which I hope you'll You'll tell us about, you know, violence and sacrifice ooze up from the core of Diritti's film, as they do also from Garrone's. Um, what are the entanglements of matter and meaning or of film industry and environment that you consider uh, here with regard to Giorgio Diritti's film? So um, this was a very small production um, that was made up in the, um, in the Occitane Alps. Naval Mayra, um, so up on the uh, border with France um, in the area where they speak Occitan, so a very un unusual dialect. Um, this was supposed to be the, the first film that was actually made in uh, Occitano. Um, and the production was made over about nine months. It involved a sort of constantly evolving troupe of volunteers who were brought on as co-producers of the film, which meant that they didn't get paid while they were working, but they were written into the contract to get paid after the film recouped some of its money. Um, and they went up to this very remote mountain village and filmed a story on location about um, essentially a French uh, shepherd or goat herd who wanted to move into town to um, start his cheese production. Um, he was initially welcomed joyously as this return to a past that they all believed in, an agrarian past that they remembered as an idol. And then um, it became dystopian for a whole variety of reasons, um, and they essentially forced him out of town. And so, with apologies for the spoilers, uh, he leaves at the end. Um, and so my interest in this film is in non-human animal actors and in also in the non-human presence um, that haunts all of cinematic productions. Um, there is um, a fascinating uh, history by um, Sean Cubitt that talks about the fact that celluloid is made, um, it's light crystal, silver sensitive light crystals that are suspended in gelatin, which is of course made um, from boiling the, the hides of and the bones of usually goats, pigs, and cows. And so um, I'm fascinated in the Ilvento Falsuojiro and the fact that there is a story of exclusion, both of human actors, but then also the town essentially decides that they don't like goats anymore, that goats are smelly um, and noisy. And one of the, the villagers actually takes revenge on the family by killing two of their goats. Um, so I'm looking at the way that um, cinema is premised and has always been premised on animal sacrifice um, because of the very material nature of celluloid. Um, and then this film that's about animal sacrifice is also um, sort of raising the curtain on how um, film productions also take advantage of animal actors and, and sometimes sacrifice them. Um, in fact, the film production um, asked a local abattoir to um, wait to kill two elderly goats that were awaiting, awaiting death 
so that they could use them um, for filming in the production. And this was a near moment of breakdown for this very small production because someone in the crew objected staunchly to the notion that these goats would be killed. Um, so the entire crew had to come together for a meeting and decide how they could um, resolve this impasse. Um, they ended up with a sort of blessing for the goats and then used them in the filming. Um, but I was really fascinated by the way that the history of this agrarian past, um, the way that it articulates in their present, um, the way the, the idol no longer functions um, for these mountain villages, um, then can be mapped onto the history of cinema itself and to in really fascinating ways and sort of asks us really tough questions. Um, this was the hardest chapter to conclude, I think, because um, I feel like all it leaves us with are really difficult questions about what we ask of our culture and, and how much we're willing to acknowledge um, all of the ways that a material world has to, it, it's called to, sacrifice, to be sacrificed for our viewing pleasure. Right. And, you know, it's so interesting the way that that it tells the reverse parable of, you know, the an the anti-modernity mode, I guess I would call it. Right. So that in, you know, if you go back to De to Red Desert or even to um, uh, Garrones Gomorra, you have there, especially with the importation in um of the toxic waste and the burying of the toxic waste in Gomorrah. That is all the, the narrative of progress, isn't it? That's the narrative of, um, of, of the value that Campania can, um, uh, can attain, uh, as a location for the dumping grounds for toxic waste. And so to go as you do in this chapter up to the mountains, up to the, the Northern reaches of Italy, into a far different um, uh, linguistic, socio-cultural uh, uh, milieu. It really shows this, um, I, I guess I called it a reverse parable, but it, what it really shows is, I think, the, the flexing of this critical model that you've got that really um, allows us to see so many different kinds of cinema um, under the umbrella of eco-cinema and to make sense of that, right? So it's not just one narrative that you're tracing, but rather um, a little spoon, not even so little, right? Elena, I mean, they're, they're, they're substantive, but um, that the different case studies do enable you to talk about, of course, different geographical regions, but also these, um, these different um, through lines or plumb lines of the narrative of modernity. Yeah, it's very beautifully articulated. Um, I, don't, I don't know how beautiful it is, but um, <laughs> but nevertheless, it was articulated. Um, I, I'm mindful of our, of our of our time. I want to stick within the time that I asked of you, and also the time that is um, uh, that we usually have. That's characteristic of um, the New Books Network uh, and its podcast. So um, you know, you had the non-human in uh, in your third chapter, and you return to it and the fourth chapter, which is um, about uh, Le Quattro Volte from 2010. And could you could you tell us a little bit about the, that film and its locations and how it allows you to shift your attention from the hybridizations that are corporeal and visualize embodiment 
to a consideration of soundscape and the acoustic. And I just wanted to also say for any students who might be listening that I really found that your focus on sound is so salutary since, of course, cinema is as much about sound or its absence as it is about the visuals. So, Le Quattro Volte, Michelangelo Frammartino. Yes, so this is a beautiful film that is um, in four acts. It's um, based on the Pythagorean notion of metempsychosis or the transmigration of the soul from the mineral to the animal to the vegetable to the human. Um, and um, it tells the story that in four distinct parts of a shepherd or a goat herd, which becomes the story of a goat, which becomes the story of a tree, which becomes the story of charcoal. Um, and I always think that the descriptions don't do it justice because it's also amazingly entertaining and it is filmed entirely without directional microphones or any um, attempt, or attempt to capture the human voice. So it has no dialogue, no subtitles. Um, and this film could also be, this chapter is also really about goats. Um, I should mention that in the case of um Ilvento Giro and Le Quattro Volte, it's really important that the non-human animal becomes the goat and um, has its specificity, a very historically interesting relationship um, with the goat herd, um, with communities in Italy, um, and that um, deserves the specificity of not just being contraposed to the human, but a creature in its own right. Um, the goats in Michelangelo Framartino's film are, are absolutely characters, um, and they are cited in the closing credits. Um, but in this... Um, in this film, I talk about um, the non-human sound that comes to the fore necessarily when you don't use directional microphones. And I talk about cinema's tendency, both technologically and narratively, to essentially make um, all the rest of the soundscapes um, secondary to human voice. Um, uh, so I was able to interview the um, sound recordists who developed a, a technique for scattering microphones throughout the visual space um, and they were so attentive to capturing the soundscapes of um, the places in um, Calabria where they're filming. Um, they were obsessed with the sound, the beautiful sounds of shoes and bells and um, of creaking charcoal. And so my chapter is arguing that another way that we can re-envision history is by listening essentially to voices that come from landscapes and places and non-human um, Creatures, and that this also allows us a really interesting new perspective on um, the cinematic world. No, oh, that's so that's so beautiful. Um, and the the film is amazing, and those goats are amazing too. Yeah. <laughs> it's really worth uh, for listeners who haven't seen the film. It's really worth uh, looking at Le Quattro Volte uh, by uh, Michelangelo Fra Martino. Um, so your final chapter in Italian eco cinema uh, brings your focus down to the very, very elements as it, or the most elemental, I think, as it explores volcanoes and volcanic magma as they function in the documentary cinema of Giovanna Taviani. So the Aeolian Islands are your central location here. So uh, just off of 
you know, Sicily is is the soccer ball that the boot of Italy is um, about to um, use to score a goal. I won't say it's going to kick Sicily, but it's going to use it to score a, a goal in a soccer game, let's say. Uh, and the Aeolian Islands are on the, the northern side, more toward the continent than away from it. That's just to locate it, right? But um, how uh, the Aeolian Islands, they've, they've played a real central um a uh, role, a leading role, really, in Italian cinema since the 1940s. And so how does Giovanna Taviani's Fughe e Aprodi, which re- was released in 2010, respond to that history? And how do history and technology come together to help you consider matter and meaning at the conclusion of Italian eco-cinema? I felt that this was a really appropriate concluding point. It's a documentary but made by um, Taviani, who's um, both a filmmaker and a film scholar, um, because it takes us back to that archival quality of both geology and cinema. Um, so she is literally constructing narratives island by island by suturing together this archive of films that were made on the island. And then... Um, working through the memories that islanders have of the films that were made on the islands. Um, and so I know that you're interested in, uh, you book into Juliana, and we're back to Giovanna Nani now. A lot of the storytellers on these islands are groups of women, circles of women in a couple of cases, who are recalling the visit of Anna Magnani to the islands, the War of the Volcanoes when Magnani and Ingrid Bergman were on two opposite islands and um, when Rossellini had left Magnani for Bergman. Um, we have all these wonderful stories that are being told both through and after cinema. And we, um, by way of the volcanic landscapes, we get access to lots of really interesting um, notions of passage and of archives. Um, volcanoes can, of course, completely upend um, geologies. When an eruption happens, essentially your landscape can get flipped upside down. Um, volcanoes are places where um, when eruptions happen, geological time passes in a way that's discernible to the human eye. Usually watching a rock is not very exciting, but when it's erupting, that's a different story. Um, And the other thing about um, volcanic landscapes and the Aeolian Islands in particular is that they're also incredibly fragile. Um, So they are a UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, but they're... um, constantly listed at, at risk as at risk because of the different ways that human activities are threatening the longevity of the landscapes, the pumice cliffs in particular that are on the island of Lipari. Um, so I think they bring together all kinds of notions of memory, and they really show how cinema can act as an archive of memory and can figure a landscape over time, um, and how cinema can show us both human fragility and and the strength of the natural world and and the opposite of these things. Um, And in the beautiful conversations that she documents, she really illustrates perfectly the the idea that um, these traces left behind are enduring in in ways that are um, sometimes really surprising. That's so so interesting, Elena. Um, And, you know, uh, it allows me to sort of take a, you know, a step back, as it were, not yet to the perspective, the perspectiveless perspective of the big blue marble, but to say of Italian eco cinema that uh, this work traces several arcs that it develops. You know, one is chronological and historical 
and reaches from Antonioni's work in the 60s to Taviani's um, archival suturing, as you've described it, right, of of the films that were from the 40s onward that that configure or constellate around the Aeolian Islands. But, you know, your interest in emplacement and location, you know, it, it, it takes us along what we could say several parabolic sweeps as you move through Italy's regions from the Adriatic and Red Desert to the Campania Neapolitan hinterland in uh, Garrone to the northern mountainous regions for the wind blows round and then to the Calabrian mountainous um, the, the, the mountainous part of Calabria in Le Quattro Volte and finally you know the submerged Mediterranean mountains otherwise known as Sicily's maritime volcanoes you know at the same time um, there's this trajectory that's very interesting that takes us from the canonical to the less canonical film texts and what that might mean for both film scholars and students. And then finally, as we've, as I forecasted before, and we just have discussed briefly, you know, um, and also related to questions of canon, we move from, you know, established master filmmakers, all male, to a woman, but not all of the crews are male. I mean, certainly that's worth saying. And if you if you say anything in Italian eco cinema, it is also to dwell on the collaborations and partnerships that are um, both made possible and necessary to the production of this location cinema. Um, but you know, you move from the master film male filmmaker Antonioni to a woman documentarist who is heir to those very filmmakers, really literally, right? Since she's the daughter and the niece of the very well-known Taviani brothers. Um, what do you think about that view of the dynamics and the movements in Italian cinema? Uh, how, did, how did you put it all together this way? Do you see it that way? Are there other trajectories um, that you thought about? Um, just sort of as a, as a closing, as a closing, a concluding question. So I think that the trajectories that you're tracing um, are really indicative of the fact that um, there's a very emergent and generative quality of eco-criticism. Uh, it's an invitation to reread texts. Um, it's not, um, it doesn't require that you find texts that are um, ecological because all texts are ecological. All, all films um, have ecological messages. And so this sweeping arc sort of shows how present these really urgent concerns are no matter where you go looking. And I think the sweep from um, canonical to less canonical and from um, master male filmmakers to um, woman documentarian is um, evidence of the urgent need to, in fact, de-hierarchize in so many ways. And that's an invitation that the um, environmental imagination urges, um, not just to raise the more than human to have a place at the table speaking with the, the human, not to get too um, metaphorical here, but um, also to really look at the ways that um, we can de-hierarchize all kinds of things like our cultural criticism. So I've learned so much in the conversations that I had for, for, for this book about film productions and about the many contributors um, who are, as you mentioned, um, crews that are you know, we're a makeup artist or um, a sound recordist or uh, a location manager have an incredibly important role in what we see on screen. Um, so I think that urgency to also re-envision film production without always defaulting to talk about the director um, um, or always talk about the leading lady and the leading man um, 
is um, is another thing that environmental cr criticism requires, right? It really sees the world as this mesh and this network. It's premised on a non-hierarchical hierarchical view of all of the contributors, um, and it recognizes that without this mesh or the network, without the entanglement and the companion species, the entire house, which um, post-humanist philosopher Roberto Marchesini says is a house of cards, but the whole oikos, the whole ecology, um, risks collapsing without that, that network. Um, so I really like your, um, your sweeping concluding question because I think it gets to the fact that this is necessarily an anecdotal book. Um, it was put together with um, an eye to the diversity of Italy's landscapes and to the diversity of the non-human actors that you can identify in, in film productions, but it's really an invitation um, to read all kinds of films, all kinds of texts. I think it's a wide open invitation to others to read um, texts with, with new and exciting um, environmental lenses that I, I have yet to imagine. Right. And this is a wide open invitation to all of our listeners to read Elena Past's Italian, Italian Cinema, Beyond the Human, just released from Indiana University Press and its New Directions in National Cinemas series. Uh, a beautiful book available uh, for purchase everywhere or for your library. Um, I always I always observe that as well, that we can always order it for our libraries too. And it, for our personal libraries, as well as our, the, if we're at institutions that have libraries, we should be thinking about that too. Um, so Elena Past, we're, we're winding up our conversation and I'd like to ask you what you're currently working on now that Italian eco-cinema has been published. Oh, well, thank you. I am currently very enthusiastically working on a project that rewinds time just a little bit further um, to the production of celluloid. So I'm developing a project on the Ferrania Film Factory um, and looking at the sort of environmental histories of film production in this uh, Valbormida, another remote location in uh, northwestern Italy where um, from 1917, um, they were originally producing gunpowder and then um, started producing celluloid film. So I'm looking at a sort of uh, even further backstory into Italian cinema with that sort of new materialist lens that I take in eco-cinema. Right. And and that, that you've referred to the films that, that you study in Italian eco-cinema as archives. And it seems to me that this factory of celluloid is going to really produce a very interesting archive of, um, of the matter, the very matter that filmmakers uh, use um, you know, up until the digital age, right, have used celluloid um, to uh, bring meaning to us as, as the viewers of their films. Uh, it sounds like a really fascinating project. Um, Elena Past, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank you um, and thank also our listeners for their time as well. Thanks. So long. Thank you so much, Ellen. So thanks a lot for listening to this installment of the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Please come back to check out our other podcasts on topics like art history, Italian cinema, medieval literature, television studies. And even more than that, history of thought, contemporary women's writing, gender studies, ecology, As well as politics and religion in Italy, opera, queer theory, Jewish studies, Dante, Machiavelli, you get the idea. We are your Italian studies hosts. Giancarlo Lombardi. Nicoletta Marini Maio. And Ellen Nirenberg. 
All comments and questions can be addressed to itst at gmail.com. E grazie dell'ascolto. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next time.